Here we are in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I was at a cross-country meet yesterday. And I have to tell you, I have come to love cross-country meets. I didn't know of them before. I mean, I knew of them, but I'd never been to one before. And if you've not been to a cross-country meet, allow me to share with you what I've learned. I really like sports, and I like competition. I like seeing the struggle and the challenge and people overcoming. That is fun for me. I like seeing all of us trying to be more than we are. And that is all epitomized at a cross-country meet, but in a fantastic way. At a cross-country meet, there is not this cheering that goes on, cheering against one another, but rather everyone that is there, both the opposing team or teams, as well as your team, the fans, everyone cheers for everyone. It is absolutely fascinating. You'll see people cheering on a runner that has nothing to do with who they are. They may have even caught what that runner's name is because another family friend or so forth that says, come on, let's go, Sarah. And they, may, and they might start using that name. Sarah, come on, you got it. Just conquer that hill. You got it. Everybody is cheering. Everybody is encouraging. Why do I share this with you? Because in a cross-country meet, there's also a lot of chaos. It's really hard to know just where the race will run. Oh, sometimes there's spray-painted lines on the ground, but there's nothing that keeps you from running near that line or walking over it. Matter of fact, a lot of people do. And so the race can go in all different ways, and nobody seems to really know where, except for that there's a rule, and the rule is don't interfere with the runners. That seems to be like the only rule. Don't get in the way of a runner. There's nothing that blocks you. It's like if you were watching a basketball game, you could freely walk on the court at any time. You just can't get in the way of the players. It's the same thing with these cross-country meets. I say this to you because the other day at this meet, a woman, not knowing what she was doing, just walking normally, was walking across the path. But she wasn't aware of it because there was kind of an amoeba of people. And the people had started to spread out because they knew something was happening. But she was unaware. And so someone finally yelled out because she wasn't moving, runners! Now, if you heard someone yell runners anywhere along the line in life, you wouldn't think much of it. You might look. But as people kept yelling runners this woman suddenly had that idea that, oh no, where am I? Am I in the way? And the look of sudden frozen, as well as like, <gasps> and looking down and seeing that the path, and then looking and trying, it's like suddenly finding yourself on the railroad tracks and you didn't know you were on them. 
and the scramble she had to get out of the way. And it was all because the context of cross-country, if someone yells runners, just like if I were suddenly to say, heads up, there's a chance you might look up. With runners, you suddenly look. Where am I? Am I in the way? Paul is writing in a manner, in a context, that we have to keep in mind the very basics of what he's writing. Otherwise, we might get lost in the particular. We might forget where we are. And this is the very basics of Paul's context. He is continually in this letter talking about God's grace and the reaction to God's grace. God's grace and his reaction to God's grace and our reaction to God's grace. That's where Paul is. If sometimes we lose the thread of his thought, we can read the words just fine. We can kind of make sense of them, but we're not really sure what to do with them. We need to go back to the basic concept, just like when someone says runners, suddenly I need to look, where am I? Am I in the way? In this case, we need to look back and say, where is Paul? Because he's always talking about grace and he's always talking about his response and our response to God's grace. That's where Paul always is. So we don't want to lose ourselves in what he writes and forget why he's writing what he's writing. I'll give you an example of how that works in the previous two weeks, the previous two verses. His first week that we read, we read the words of, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. In other words, by the grace of God. That was where his appeal was coming from. That's where he was working from. He had built 11 chapters, particularly the three chapters before, all about God's grace. And he was taking that and he's saying, now looking at God's grace, I now appeal to you to do this. This is God's grace. Here's where response is going. And his call to us was to be a living sacrifice in that first week to live as if we're giving ourselves fully to God. Last week, last week he started to define a little bit about what does it look like to be a living sacrifice? I mean, none of us just want to be draped on an altar, still alive, wondering what we're supposed to do. What are we supposed to actively be doing? What does that look like? And again, we're in talking as a response to the grace, the response is, how do we live differently? What does that look like? Paul says last week, he says, look, I want you to no longer be conformed by the way the world forms us, but to be transformed. I want you to be changed. I want you to be changed by the grace of God. And that change is going to come through a renewing of your mind, a renewing of the way you think a renewing of the way you see the world. I want you to see the world, Paul says, as God sees it. I want you to look at things the way God wills things to be. We say that in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done, right? It's seeing things as God's will. That was week one and week two. Here we are in week three, and we're still in that vein of responding to the grace of God, although Paul likes to circle back and how we are to respond. And if he tells us to have a renewing of our mind, you know, what does that renewal of mind look like? 
Well, here's where Paul goes. He says, for by the grace given to me, I don't go back to verse three, please. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than you ought, he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He is speaking to what that new mindset looks like. And he begins by going back to grace. In particular, if you read it in the Greek, it says, actually it starts with, for I say. That's actually the way he really starts out. For I say, and we can't read over that too quickly. He's speaking out of the very heart of who he is. You've seen that before when someone gives a good speech, a motivational speech, or is encouraging others. They get to that point where they've, they've given all their reasons, but then they, they throw themselves into the speech. You know what I'm talking about. When someone is so impassioned that they're just, they are part of the speech. You know, I, it doesn't matter what you're going to do. You've got to make that choice. But for me, I'm going to be. And they, they lead from that place. And Paul is doing that. Paul is in the third verse, having built the first two verses of this appeal. He's now saying, here's where I am. Here's what I'm saying to you. I am speaking to you. And he's not just speaking to the church in Rome. He's speaking in a way that transcends time. And in essence, he is speaking to us as well. He's speaking out of the very depth of who he is. He's not speaking just to the culture of the Roman church. He's speaking to everyone who bears the name of Jesus Christ. And he's speaking out of his own living out this faith. And he's saying, I say to you. And he's doing it. Notice what he says. For by the grace given to me. Yes, he circled back to that first part of grace. But he's being very specific. The grace given to me. I say to you, out of the grace given to me, he's not using it as an authority because God has given me grace. I have authority to speak to you. No, that's not the way he's doing that. There are times where he speaks out of his apostleship, but that's not what's happening here. He's lifting up God's grace to him, and that is his motivation to speaking to us. And what is his, the grace that he's received? Paul is reminding us what happened to him. He was a faithful follower of God. He was well-learned in what they called the law. He knew Scripture backwards and forwards. He knew the arguments about Scriptures backwards and forwards. He was at the top of his class. He was in that class of Pharisees, often a negative class in Christian thinking, but truly someone who knew the word very well. And he was incredibly faithful to God, such that when a new sect rose up that was kind of distorting God's word as he saw it, he faithfully went out there and went to put that down, even if it meant persecuting and death of those individuals. That's the path he was on when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Jesus spoke to him 
and blinded him. Many of us who've grown up in the church have heard this story in many ways. But we need to understand that he was trying to faithfully follow God, and instead he hears this word from heaven, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who says, you're on the wrong path. Now, in his mind, and in his judgment, at this point, if you're on the wrong path of God, you deserve judgment. But that's not what happens to him. Instead, he receives God's grace through Jesus Christ. And he begins a new life. The scales over his eyes fall off. And he sees the world very differently. But think about all the work he had to do through all the scripture that he understood, how he had to reprocess all of it to understand what God had now done through Jesus Christ, that God truly had sent the promised one, the anointed one, the Savior. And in so doing, didn't judge Paul, but rather saved Paul from himself. Paul's whole life from that point forward is a response to the grace that God gave him. So he's been building up about this grace to the church in Rome, and he finally says, I appeal to you out of this grace. You need to change who you are. You need to present yourselves as living sacrifice, much like he had done. You need to change the way you think, much like he had done. And so now he comes back and he says, for I say to you, and I say it to you out of the very grace of God that he had received, not because he was better, but he's been reminding them, look at, I received grace. And that's the only reason I speak to you, because I receive grace. I want you to live in that grace. And he says, I say this to you, every one of you. See how it says that? Everyone among you. If you were doubting what I said earlier, that when he says, I say to you, and he wrote not just to the church in Rome, but to us ourselves, this is where you get that idea. He is writing it to everyone who has confessed Christ. I say to every one of you, and that transcends time, it transcends generations. It's for the church in Rome, it's for us, and it's for the generations to come after us. I say to every one of you, and here's the direction about that mindset. Here's the first step into that mindset. Not to think more highly than he ought to think. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Paul is going to do something here that's pretty interesting in the Greek. He takes the word think which really at its very root is understand. And he uses it in different forms. He adds different prefixes to it, but plays with the same root word in four different ways. And actually it's three different ways, but he does it, in a, he says it four times, it's three different ways. This first time he speaks of it in terms of, hey, look, don't think in a way that puts yourself up here. And we all like to think we don't do that. You know, we're not so arrogant. We're not, we're not like that. 
But Paul is addressing that first original sin where we tend to think of ourselves before we think of God. Paul is addressing that first thing that really gets at the heart of each of us, that we start to think more of ourselves than we should. He dealt with this a lot in just the chapter before what we're reading now. He dealt with those Gentile Christians, those Christians who were not Jews, who suddenly were part of the faith and were looking down at the Jews that hadn't yet embraced Christ. They were feeling better about themselves, that they had been grafted into the tree of God, that they were part of the family of God, and they were thinking pretty good of themselves. And Paul squashes that and says, you're, you're, you're off. You're forgetting it's not anything you've done. It's the grace of God that allows you to be here. And so what Paul is doing when he says not to think more highly of yourselves than you ought, he is reminding ourselves that what undergirds all of this in our response is the grace of God. None of us have any claim other than the grace of Jesus Christ. None of us can claim anything This is a woeful sin that eats away at each and every church. We start to think of ourselves better than we should. We start to think of ourselves as more put together than the world out there. It's baloney. Absolute baloney. We might now be trying to live forward in Jesus Christ. We might be living in the grace and trying to become what God wants us to be. But who we are and wherever we are on that path doesn't make us any better than anyone else who hasn't started the path. Because the only thing that we can credit to ourselves is the grace of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so Paul says, when you do this reshaping of your mind, when you change the way you think, it begins by recognizing that none of us should think more of ourselves than what we are. We're sinners that have been saved through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's it. I mean, we do it all the time. We talk about people and we say, you know, well, we're trying to get a feel about the person. We say, well, they go to church. And immediately we give them another credit in their column, right? We think, well, they must be a little better. And then we're surprised sometimes when someone in the church fails us. And we say, but they go to church. And we think about them as a hypocrite. They're not a hypocrite. They're exactly who they always were. Sinner. The only claim we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the grace that we've been given. And now each of us is trying to live forward to live into who God wants us to be. But all that advancement has no claim to ourselves. So Paul starts out, look at, I want to say to you out of my own grace that I've received, I want you to be clear. I was somebody I was a Pharisee. I was a a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was in the best school taught by the best person. That's nothing. It's nothing. I speak solely to you, he says, out of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I warn you right away as you're thinking to make sure you don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. It's like one of the great warnings to the church. But then he makes sure that we're not just left there. He's going to give us a way to think. He wants us to think with what 
the ESV, the, uh, uh, the standard version here, translates as sober judgment. Sober judgment. We can grasp not to think more highly than we ought, but what's, what, what am I supposed to do? Think with sober judgment. What, what is that? The root really is wisdom. It's, it's a wisdom. It's a, it's a clear way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that is catching and correcting those self-interests that are in each of us. It's catching our, our drives and our desires that will pull us away from God. It's catching that that's happening. A sober judgment and being more careful and cautious to recognize, wait a minute, what are my motivations here? We can always find a positive motivation, but what about that lurking underneath motivation that maybe isn't so positive? Paul is calling for a change of thought that, that no longer lives in a way of wondering how we can live up and be more than we are, of constantly creating that mask and that appearance for others, but rather to think in a way that recognizes who we really are and to think honestly about whose we are. A sober judgment, and that sober judgment is attached to what he says each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, just as he has had to look back at what God did for him, he's calling each of us in our day-to-day -day lives to look at what God has done for us. How much has God saved each one of us? How many of us have seen a friend or someone from the past that we used to hang with and they've ended up in a way of life that we would have never wanted to go and yet we recognize just for the sake of a few decisions or things that happened but for the grace of God you could have been that person in that space or how many of us look back at our own train wreck of a life in different places the mistakes that we've made and realize what God has saved us from. Each of us is to look at that reality and to remember how much God has brought us forward through Jesus Christ. When we look at the failings of someone else, to look at those failings through the lens of our own failings and realize how much God has saved us and that God can do the same for that person as well. And it says that God has assigned, that God has appropriated. And the word really is parts, that God has done different parts for each one of us, each of us needing just a different kind of fix. How much of us would we like if a doctor, if we went to the doctor, the doctor did the same part of healing for everybody who came to the doctor? You know, the kid who comes in with a, 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 a cut knee, they put a Band-Aid on it. For the person coming in having a heart attack, you know, heart, feeling like they're having a heart attack, they take and put a Band-Aid on it. For the person coming in whose, whose leg has, has mangled and, and they, you don't know if they ever could walk in, you put a Band-Aid on it. That's not the way God works. 
Each one of us has had a different measure of God's grace. Each one of us should look at that and recognize how much God has done for us. And this is where it gets exciting. This is where Paul's letter begins to start to take off. Remember the other week when I said it's, these first three verses are kind of like an acorn that, you know, has got so much energy and so much power in it and that eventually that acorn explodes and becomes a full-blown tree? This is where Paul's letter is about to burst forward. And we're going to read where this goes because what it's going to do is it's going to go into some familiar territory for some of us. It's going to begin to talk about gifts. But we need to recall that Paul is talking about those gifts that we get excited about. What gift do I have? What has God given to me? We need to remember that it all comes out of God's grace and what is our response to the grace that we've been given. And Paul makes this shift into talking about gifts. He makes this shift because he uses that word assigned, which like I said in the Greek is all about parts, and it becomes a transition piece about moving forward out of God's grace into our response. All of us have different parts of what we've received in God's grace, and therefore we have different responsibilities as a response to God's grace. That's where Paul's moving as we read this next piece. For as in one body, we have many members. Notice the part imagery. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does act of mercy with cheerfulness. All of this isn't about us searching after, okay, what did God, what gift did God give me? All of this is a pushing of Paul to say, look, God has given us grace. He's reshaped and reformed each of us, and we're each being called to begin to work out what this means for us, to begin to think differently, not think more highly than we ought, but to start thinking about, okay, who am I and what am I supposed to do? And Paul begins to split that acorn out and starts to give some images of what that could look like. He lists seven different places. That doesn't mean that that's the exclusive list. It's proven because in Corinthians, he writes a different list, some of it overlapping, some of it different. Paul is using it as an image to expand on who we are to be now as followers of Jesus Christ. God has put gifts in you and God wants you to use those gifts for his glory, for his purposes. It's all a response to the grace. You could be a wonderful preacher. 
and get all sorts of praise for being a great preacher. But you know what? The praise isn't yours. The praise is God's. Because God gave the gifts to one to be a great preacher. God gave the gifts to another to be a great teacher. God gave the gifts to another to be an incredible leader. All of it is not so that individual could be built up, and that was certainly the danger in the church. The church struggled with that greatly early on. But rather that those gifts are all a response to God's grace and now using them for the body, for the whole, so that God's church may go forward and others may come to hear of the good news of Jesus Christ. So when we lifted up people today and prayed for them as they taught, as we said, hey, consider if the Spirit is calling you to teach at this time, recognize it's not ultimately about any of us. It's about what is God calling at this time for his church and for his children in the church. When we look over the nominations for consistory, it's not about who we think is good or we like this person as opposed to that person. It's who is God calling to be in leadership at this time. And that comes through prayer. And if you're sitting here today wondering, well, what are my gifts? Well, I don't know. You know, I'm pretty good at doing something that seems unimportant. Well, that doesn't necessarily follow. It's not about whether you think one gift is more valuable than another. Paul deals with that in his letter to the Corinthian church. Like, hey, look at, they're all necessary. It's about using your gift or gifts that God has given you for God's glory. Doing your best. Many of us can remember the movie Chariots of Fire. And one of the key people in that is Eric Little, one of the key runners. Eric Little is known, known well in the missionary world for being a missionary, but he also ran and ran in the Olympics and won. But what he said is, he says, when I run, I feel God smiling on me. He knew that his running was a gift that God had given and that he needed to run so that God would be glorified in watching the gift that he'd been given. Yes, he became a great missionary as well and died in a Japanese concentration camp, but still inspired many a person. He had more than one gift, but he did it to the glory of God. Paul is appealing out of the grace, calling us to be living sacrifices, to live into this, to change the way we see the world and think and think according to God's will and to do so in a manner that puts us down, don't lift ourselves up, but rather recognizes any claim that we have is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that any gift we have are to be used for his purposes and for his church. All so that God may be glorified. So that we can say together with the psalmist, as we said at the start of the worship today, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be all glory for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray. 
Oh, Lord, may you be glorified. May you be glorified by our actions this morning. May you be glorified by our actions this afternoon. May you be glorified by our work this week, all our interactions, our thoughts, our words. May we strive to take another step forward in giving you glory in all these different components of our lives. Oh, we know we will fail, Lord, and when we fail, may we fall on your grace. But as we dare to take another step forward, may it always be in your power and in your strength and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hamilton Reformed Church. Living sacrifices. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and forevermore. Amen.